Good morning. This is I'm Linda. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you for coming on this yet another rainy day in Collegedale, Tennessee. <laughs> I think we've had more rainfall than any other state in the country this year. But I, I take it well in that it could have been colder and this could have been the snow that they've been having up north and out west. So I am in that respect grateful for the rain. But it gets a little dreary. I'm ready for some sunshine and flowers. I'm here filling in for Tim Jennings today who's been in Australia. He's had... 31 presentations in 16 days. He's had quite a schedule, and there's been amazing things happening. I'm sure he'll report on that when he comes back. He's en route today. On the plane as we speak. <laughs> on the plane as we speak. It's Sunday over there. <clears throat> so I'm filling in. Please keep me in your prayers, and I welcome all contributions. We're studying the first quarter of 2019, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, The Judgment on Babylon. And before we start, let's have a little word of prayer. Dear Father, you have such deep knowledge and creativity and capability, and we can only barely scratch the surface of what you know and what you can do. We pray that you send your Holy Spirit to be among us today as searchers for the truth. Lead us into the present truth for today. Help us to understand things that have been difficult for us to understand, and teach us what we need to know, especially to be prepared for your soon coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the memory verse text today is uh, Revelation 18, 4 and 5. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. This reminds me of another place in the Old Testament where the sins reached to heaven, and that was Sodom and Gomorrah, where the Abraham was told, we've come to see if it's as bad as we've heard, essentially, and to remedy the situation. And... So I would like first to start, kind of like I did the last time, with somebody reading from a, a regular Bible, uh, Revelation 17. Let's start there. And so we all start from the same place. We know where we have traditionally read this section, for those of you who haven't had a chance to read it. So would anybody like to be brave enough to read chapter 17? The entire thing? It's not that long, is it? Well, part of it, and then give up and let someone else try. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, and I will show you how the famous prostitute is to be punished, that great city that is built near many rivers. The kings of the earth practiced sexual immorality with her, and the people of the world became drunk from drinking the wine of her immorality. The spirit took control of me, and the angel carried me to a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a red beast that had names insulting to God written all over it. The beast had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and covered with gold ornaments, precious stones and pearls. In her hand she held a gold cup full of obscene and filthy things, the result of her immorality. On her forehead was written a name that had a secret meaning, Great Babylon, the mother of all prostitutes and perverts in the world. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's people and the blood of those who were killed because they had been loyal to Jesus. When I saw her, I was completely amazed. Why are you amazed? The angel asked me. I will tell you the secret meaning of the woman and of the beast that carries her, the beast with seven heads and ten horns. That beast was once alive but lives no longer. It is about to come up from the abyss and will go off to be destroyed. The people living on earth whose names have not been written before the creation of the world and the book of the living, will all be amazed as they look at the beast. It was once alive, now it no longer lives, but it will reappear. This calls for wisdom and understanding. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five of them have fallen, one still rules, and the other one has yet to come. When he comes, he must rule only a little while. And the beast that once was once alive, but lives no longer, is itself an eighth king, who is one of the seven, and is going off to be destroyed. The ten horns, you have, 
you saw are ten kings who have not yet begun to rule, but who will be given authority to rule as kings for one hour with the beast. These ten all have the same purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. They will fight against the lamb, but the lamb, together with his called, chosen, and faithful followers, will defeat them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. The angel also said to me, The waters you saw on which the prostitute sits are nations, peoples, races, and languages. The ten horns you saw and the beast you hate will hate the prostitute. They will take away everything she has and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and destroy her with fire. For God has placed in their hearts the will to carry out his purpose by acting together and giving to the beast their power to rule until God's words come true. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Well done. Thank you. So this is where we're going to begin. And I would like to just say an additional thing before we really begin on this. Uh, Two weeks ago, I gave the view that multiple Christian beliefs stem from a vital truth or truths being found out of all the previous error that persons have believed. And the joy of this discovery, followed by a creation of perhaps a new denomination, is being like hot lava. This enthusiasm seems to cool down over time, as lava does, and the believers stay right where they are, holding tight to this or these new beliefs. Then another truth is found, same thing happens, then another and another, till we have thousands of Christian beliefs systems. So we have to ask ourselves, could this be true of us as well, of our church? Could we be so content with the truth that we have that we're not open to any other truth that God may reveal, and so become like like uh, cold lava, hard and unyielding? So I was talking with my aunt, 90-year-old aunt, she turned 90, sharp as a tack, this week, and we spent two hours on the phone, and she brought to my attention some things that I wouldn't have thought of looking at, (laughs) in Counsels to Writers and Editors by E.G. White, pages 34 to 41, she mentioned 35 specifically, uh, for her position on new light that should be coming even until the end of time. Um, Here's a few examples. This is page 34. A spirit of Phariseeism has been coming in upon the people who claim to believe the truth for these last days. They're self-satisfied. They've said, we have the truth. There's no more light for the people of God. Does that sound familiar to anybody? We have the truth. But here, listen to what she says. But we are not safe when we take the position that will not accept anything else than upon that which we have settled as truth. We should take the Bible and investigate it closely for ourselves. We should dig in the mind of God's word for truth. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Some have asked me if I thought there was any more light for the people of God. Our minds have become so narrow that we do not seem to understand that the Lord has a mighty work to do for us. Increasing light is to shine upon us for the path of the just as is a shining light and shineth more and more until the perfect day. A shorter one on page 35. New light will ever be revealed on on the word of God to him who is in living connection with the son of righteousness. Let no one come to the conclusion that there is no more truth to be revealed. The diligent, prayerful seeker for truth will find precious rays of light to shine forth from the work of God, from the word of God. Many gems are yet scattered that are to be gathered together to become the property of the remnant people of God. And also on 35, there is no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed and that all of our expositions of scripture are without an error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not a proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. That's just a little sample. I encourage you to read pages 34 through 41. You'll see even more. I only chose a few samples. But I think that I would not like to see our church or us become like hardened lava. I would like us to 
follow where the truth leads. And that's why I really appreciate this Sabbath school, is that we are seekers after truth, or we wouldn't be here, because it's very challenging to be in this Sabbath school. We have, are made to think, and like Tim says, I'm not here to tell you what to think, I'm here to get you to think. And so I appreciate this class for that reason. We are not afraid of following light. Not that it would change substantial ideas, but new ways of looking at those doctrines, new interpretations. We'll be hearing more about that when Tim gets here. And we're really excited for what's coming. So we, I just wanted to preface my, um, the discussion today by thanking Tim and this class and all you participants for being willing to, you know, maybe get outside your comfort zone. And just think about maybe we've looked at something a certain way because when we were young or when we came to this truth, this is the way it was presented to us. And maybe the ministers who went to seminary, this was the way it was presented to them. But is it possible that we could be looking at something with certain lenses on and so we see it that way when it's possible that we may have overlooked other possible ways of looking at things. So let's um, get into the Sabbath school lesson today. With that in mind, thank you for being willing to think. Thank you for being willing to challenge and to accept challenges. We want you to study the Bible with all your hearts every day. We want you to really think about these things that we're presenting with an open mind and try to see if the Lord will lead us into something new. You reminded me of something that I think C.S. Lewis wrote about in the Screwtape Letters, where an inferior devil is talking to his superior uh, about this man that he's supposed to be tempting. And he's very concerned because the man has just captured this butterfly of truth. And uh, he's like, you know, what what am I going to do? And the answer is, don't worry about it. He's just going to put it in a bottle and sit on the mantle and admire it and not do anything with it. And, you know, I mention that only because, to me, truth is sort of irrelevant unless you can do something practical with it. If there is no practical application, then why would you ever argue about it or divide up Christendom because of it, etc.? Exactly. And if you can add to that mix... A little dose of how why to fear God. I think the last time I mentioned in um, Luke, when Zechariah was John the Baptist's father, Zechariah could finally speak again after John the Baptist was born and named. He gave prophecies on what his son would accomplish and what the mission of Jesus was. And the last thing on the list of accomplishments for Jesus was to enable us to serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness all our days. So what would Satan want to do but to, to sprinkle all in all the churches everywhere he can some form of fear of God? Where Jesus came to erase that. So we know the text that says perfect love casts out fear. But the reverse is also true. I don't know if you've thought of it this way. Fear casts out love. Because you cannot be in love with somebody who terrifies you. And Satan knows that very well. So if he can find a way to present anything about God in any form that terrifies you, then he's got it made because he knows you cannot really love a God like that. And I think the example would be if you were dating someone and finally you thought, let's take the next step. And the guy asked the girl, you know, will you marry me? And while she thinks over the implications of that, he whips out a gun, holds it to her head and said, look, I've put a lot of time, money and energy into this relationship. Marry me or I'll kill you. (laughs) Can you think how love might grow in that situation? Would you suddenly feel, oh, he must love me so much to want to kill me if I don't love him back? No, that kind of fear, abuse, terrifying uh, people, any form of that, if you put that in the God's location, will cause us to feel that way about him. Love me or I'll not only kill you, but in some in ch- variations of church, I will artificially keep you alive so that you can be tortured through the rest of eternity because you didn't choose me. Now, what kind of God is that? 
Can you love a God like that? Can you honestly say that's a God that I would want to worship? That's a God that would create fear. When at at the end of creation, the seventh day, he could have said, look at this power I have presented. Look how I've created this. Kneel down and worship me. He could have. That could be the God we have out there. But instead, he gave us, I rest my case. Give it a day and think about it. Think about our relationship. Think about what I've created and how one thing turns on another, how there's a circle of life, unselfish giving, and so on. No, he gave us a a time to think about it. And at the Last Supper, the text just before when Jesus took took off his outer garment and washed the disciples' feet, the text just before that says, and Jesus, knowing that all power in heaven and earth had been given to him, all power, what's he do with that? Takes off his outer garment, kneels down, and washes his disciples' feet. Every one of those disciples, we focus on Judas, but every one of those disciples was going to betray him, deny him, desert him that very day. That very day. (laughs) And yet, with all his power, he serves. This is God trying to present who he is. A God of freedom to think about it. A God who says, I use my power to serve you. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. He is here to serve you. I don't know about you, but that's a God I can love. That's a God I don't have to be afraid of. He came to make it possible for me to become holy. Without him, there would be no possibility of being holy. Without the Holy Spirit, there's nothing about us that could change. We are so blind. I've mentioned before, but uh, somebody said, "Well, if there's a designer, there um, if there's a design, there has to be a designer." I was talking with a person who doesn't believe in God, and so, well, then where did the designer come from? And I said, "Well, have you ever tried to describe to your cat where you came from?" <laughs> Literally, you know, you could talk to your blue in the face. That cat will never understand where you came from, how you came to be. It's, it's not because it's a bad cat. It's only because it's limited in its understanding. But it can understand that you love it. it. You're feeding it. You're spending time with it. It can feel that. But it can never understand where you came from. And we are like, I mean, how much distance between us and a cat? How much distance between us and a being who says he created the entire universe? It it is very likely we are incapable of understanding that. But we're told that when we're in heaven, we will know as we are known. And we're told we're known very, very well. (laughs) But then we will know as we're known. And perhaps we'll have the capability of understanding more about where God came from. But to dismiss God as a being, you know, who you, who might want your love, might want a relationship with you, to dismiss him as not there because you can't understand where he might have come from, you know, is crazy. But that's the way a lot of people do. I can't understand it, so it must not be true. Anyone else have any examples of how that might play in, how in real life we might discard something that isn't true because we don't understand it? We can't see it. To people who uh, discard the idea that God knows everything um, because they can't fathom how he could know it and not not change it. Um, and uh, just because they can't understand it, they, they throw it out. And that leaves you with kind of a very limited God. Or they blame him entirely. And because they don't think that's a very nice God, then they don't want to believe in that, so they don't believe in it. Along that line of thinking, um, one one verse in this uh, chapter said that uh, God put it in their hearts to believe something or to do something. And in the case of uh, the Egyptians, for instance, he... Actually, it says he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, if you look a little further into into that interpretation, I'm sure that everyone in this class believes that what really happened was that God allowed their own thinking, their own choices to harden within their minds and within their will to do 
And so, therefore, God was taking responsibility for what they did, but he was giving it, he was giving them the freedom for doing it. There's actually three places where that's mentioned, and it says it in three different ways. One is Pharaoh hardened his own heart. One is God Pharaoh, God hardened his heart. And then another place said Pharaoh's heart was hardened. <laughs> so you have three ways of looking at it. And how God might harden his or our hearts is by presenting us with truth. With, if you, this is the truth, let me go, leave it, or there's a punishment for that. You know, there's a consequence for that. And in the case of the plagues, since we'll be looking a little bit at plagues today, in the case of the Egyptian plagues, um, he was warned, for one thing, this is what will happen. It didn't come upon surprise. Two, it was against, each one was against one of the gods of Egypt to show that they weren't powerful as the Egyptians thought, and finally ending up with the death of Pharaoh's own firstborn son because Pharaoh acted and thought that he was like God to people. So, I mean, he kept giving him these advantages. He knew how Pharaoh was going to react, so in that respect, he hardened his heart by presenting truth to him, knowing how he would react to this. He already warned Pharaoh, I know he's going to do this, but you still need to go through the steps. And so... In today's, day, in today's day and time, we can be confronted by truth, confronted by truth, and no, I will not have it get out, you know. Yes? I like the word solidify um, in place of hardening. I think it's a better uh, translation. God would have been very pleased for Pharaoh to solidify his decision towards God, and that was very possible. Um, he was given all the evidence to be able to do that. In addition, I would comment that in talking to atheists and, and doubters, um, you know, I see the evangelical approach in many cases, especially with the book of Revelation, is my God is powerful and he's finally going to prove it to you, you know? And I think that's a, that's a, a distortion of the real message of Revelation. I think uh, for me, I go back to uh, one great example in the Old Testament is Elijah on Mount Carmel and all the drama that happened. And then afterward, God says, you know, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And Elijah's going, wait a minute, I I just saw the fire come out. You know, you you just revealed yourself, didn't you? And God said, no, uh, I'm not in the drama. And then he sent three more dramas, amazing, you know, dramas in nature, you know, uh, to and, and each time he said, I'm not in that, I'm not in that, I'm not in that. And then he came as a still small voice. And then ironically, Elijah got decommissioned at that point. He says, you're, you're going to go and pass the mantle to somebody new. You know, as if to say that all that representation you did of me in the drama, you know, you kind of misrepresented me. I, I'm, what, what I want, you know, how I want to connect with people is not in power, you know, to convince them that, that I'm powerful, but to convince them of who I am. Very good. When you were talking about, go ahead, Wendell, I'm sorry. Can I continue on the discussion of did God place something in someone's heart or whatever? As the creator of the universe, he is the source of how things work. And so, consequently, our rules of behavior and, and whatnot are God-given. He has demonstrated to us what we need. You know, so many times His revelations, His interactions with humans is what we need. It's not what He needs. It's what we need to be able to comprehend and to understand and to trust, to truly trust him for who he is. Right, exactly. He designed the law of worship. Right. And when truth is presented and rejected, a lie is the only thing that's left to believe in. That's how God hardened Pharaoh's heart, by designing his life to operate that way. Excellent, well said. Also, getting back to your comment about the Sabbath, he created the Sabbath. You know, Christ said, the Sabbath is for man not man for the Sabbath. He didn't create the Sabbath and then we are to obey it. You know, the Sabbath, yeah, the, the, the Sabbath was made for man. We needed that. 
He might not have needed it, but we did. So the fourth commandment could read, we've discovered, that remember the seventh day to keep it holy, to keep yourselves holy, is another interpretation of that same scripture. Remember the seventh day to keep yourselves holy. And it's funny that the only commandment that says remember is the one, only one that we tend to want to forget. So I remember he he put remember in there because it was so important. And he knew that our tendency would be to forget it. And I want to contrast Pharaoh's example because today we're looking at, you know, what do we do when we're confronted with truth? And the end of time, looking at Babylon, we're going to talk here in a minute about what it means to be Babylon and leaving it. Um, So obviously when you confront persons in Babylon with truth, there's various reactions. So we looked at Pharaoh and his reaction was, oh, no, you can't do that. No, 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 until he finally said, get out. And then he even reneged on that and went after him. But contrast that with Nebuchadnezzar. God really worked hard for Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, you've got to see that Nebuchadnezzar, we have, you know, the... Daniel in the lion's den, we have the visions that he had that Daniel interpreted. You are the head of gold and so on. We have all of these things. Well, when you look at all these things he was presented, he was even turned into an animalistic being for seven years until he finally said, okay, you are the creator. I'm not all that, you know, but he was into being all that. And so when you come down to the, the guys in the furnace, You have a little miniature end-of-time demonstration for Nebuchadnezzar. These people, the three, refused to bow down to him as God. So he got all enraged because he was all that. And he didn't want to be just the head of gold. He wanted to be the entire statue of gold. He did not want to follow like other other, uh, kingdoms are going to follow me. I am going to stay put. I am going to be here. It's all gold. So here's God trying hard to win, in every way you can think of, to win Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And so here we have Daniel the lines, and we have um, the three worthies, as they call them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, They would not bow to him. So what was done? They stoked up that fire to hotter than hot, and then they had some poor guys, um, you know, bind them and throw them in. And the only two things that were destroyed by that fire were the ropes that bound them and the people who put them in. (laughs) So um, they themselves were not touched at all by that fire. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar amazed. Not only he sees them walking around, there's not a smell of fire. There's no singeing on their beards or turbans. They specifically say nothing else was harmed or even smelled different from them being in the fire. And there was a fourth being in there who looked like son of the gods to Nebuchadnezzar. And that was a big um, influencer. Nebuchadnezzar, like Pharaoh, was sort of the ruler of the giant part of the world at that time, and God knew that, that if he could win Nebuchadnezzar over, he then would convey this information to the rest of his kingdom, which he did. Unlike Pharaoh, who just hardened his heart to the point of, you know, complete obstinance, Nebuchadnezzar apparently was won over because he then sent a letter to every part of his entirely huge kingdom praising the God of heaven. And so on. We, we see two people that God would have liked to Wendell's point to, two people that God would have liked to have saved. God, they're his sons. You know, we think what early on in this ministry, we created a poster that had Jesus kneeling down at the, some of the leaders of this world, uh, washing their feet. One of them wasn't Osama bin Laden. One of them was Osama bin Laden at the time. Well, we had various reactions to that poster. Some people just could not accept the idea that God might, might kneel down and, and wash Osama bin Laden's feet. That's not my, one of them said, tell them what one of them said. Do you remember? I do remember Tim talking about the, the, the poster being displayed at a mall somewhere in the Midwest and two Islamic guys stopped and just stared and stared at it for almost an hour. Did they just, you could see their minds working. Uh, I, I, I wasn't, I don't recall any of the negative comments. Well, one of them said, that's not my God. My God would reach into their beating heart like Indiana Jones and pull out their beating heart in his hands. 
that's the God I, I, that's the way I think God should behave. I mean, really and literally, people look at God that way. Take vengeance when God says, I will avenge, you know, leave it to me. They don't really understand what he means by that. And they want God to be big brother, fix it for me. I am not supposed to hurt him, but you hurt him for me. Um, and I, in my notes here, I have some, some things about that. I can find them real quick. On the subject of allowing in new light and embracing truth and rejecting lies, over the past, I'll say five years, I've become fascinated with cognitive dissonance theory. If you're familiar with this, it's a theory in psychology that, that attempts to explain why it's difficult to move people from an individual or group of people from one mindset to a different mindset. Uh, and based on some of the history of our class, which I won't go into, um, it, it's it's explained quite a lot. The, and I would I would encourage you to to do your own research into cognitive dissonance theory because it's it's difficult. Having been through cognitive uh, the experience of cognitive dissonance myself, where I had to unlearn things that I had learned and had become a, a part of my very being, and that I represented in, in daily life. To have, to have to come to the admission that, that it was a complete error and things that I was taught or that I learned were mistaken and wrong and having to move to a different mindset, it's painful at the time. It's not an easy task. And those who, who want to reject that, that mental anguish or it would have been worse if I had in a lifetime's worth of publications espousing a certain mindset and then have to reject that, it would be even much worse. Or if I'd been a minister leading, shepherding churches uh, following a certain mindset, it'd be much more difficult to have to reject it. I'm, I'm a little, little peon healthcare provider. It was it was easier for me than it would be for them. But it's painful. It's a, it's a difficult, painful process. And if you, and I see this a lot in my practice, the, the patients that come into me and don't want to endure some short-term pain for some long-term benefit, they end up in much worse function than those who just accept the process of dealing with the short-term pain for long-term functional benefit. Same, same thing happens in the mind. Well said. Well, there's too many notes for me to find that, so I'm going to move on. <laughs> I just want to add that Great Controversy by Ellen White, page 651, says, And through the eternal ages, new truth will be continually unfolding to the wandering and delighted eye. We'll not only be learning here, we'll be learning there. There's no uh, no place for us to think that, that we have it all, that there isn't anything new, no new insight. So let's talk about what is Babylon. Babylon, I used to think, was the world, the world. And then I found that it wasn't necessarily the world. It was religions (laughs) that don't tell the truth about God, any religion that doesn't tell the truth about God. Babel, uh, according to the abarimpublications.com, Babel means a confused mix of voices and other sounds from Babel, B-A-B-H-E-L in Hebrew, which is gate of the deity, or gate of God. And so when the Tower of Babel was being created, why was it being created? What was the motivation for the people of the world to create this really, what they intended to be a really tall tower? Or being, being destroyed by the next Distrust of God. Yeah. They didn't trust the rainbow. They didn't trust that God <laughs> would not destroy the world by flood again. Well, maybe PTSD. <laughs> they, they'd been so... And, you know, so shocked by the flood that they wanted to do. All they had was Noah's recount of it. None of them survived it. These were peoples that that peopled the earth and were told the story through Noah and his sons. Mm -hmm. And I imagine some of his sons uh, told a different version than Noah did. Well, you know, it can't have been an easy one-year experience with all those animals. Right. And, you know, rock and roll and the smell. Someone told me one time when they were referring to the church and with all of its flaws, any church, um, they said, well, the ark wasn't the best smelling place to be, but it was the safest place to be. 
And so today, when sometimes people reject the idea of gathering together as a church, they don't, they get offended by the behavior of some of the animals in the church. And, and really, <laughs> but the, the strengthening of each other through church, through the support group for sharing ideas is, is what we really need. And so obviously people are going to want to think, I can have a spiritual life all on my own, where the Bible clearly says, don't stop meeting together. Two or even three are, are stronger than one alone. Eve wandered off by herself, and that's when she was unaided by Adam. She was deceived and so on. There's a lot of evidence that going it alone is not the safest way to go. In Noah's time, the ark was the safest place to be to prevent destruction. In these last days, we perhaps have another ark. The truth about God as contained in the Ark of the Covenant, for example. It contains the um, Ellen White calls it the Christ, God's righteousness is the law, and we call it in here uh, natural law. You know, the God created this universe to operate a certain way, and when you break that law, you get out of harmony with life. When you stop breathing, I'm going to break the law of respiration. What will happen to you? You know, you're breaking the law. We don't think of all laws like that, but that's why God's law could not be changed to meet the extreme, to meet men's in their wickedness. It couldn't be changed. The men have to move who moved here. The law can't move there. They have to become in, in harmony with that law. And we can't without God. There's no way we can be in harmony with that law. We're just innately selfish beings, as anyone who's had children notices. And then some never really get outside of that selfish behavior and thought. So Babel had meant gate of God. And then when God confused their voices, their languages and created different languages so they would get away from each other and not communicate so well with each other, it became, um, Babel was, became the meaning of confusion confusion. Now they, they said, well, because their languages are confused, you're asking for one thing and the guy gives you something entirely different. You can't make progress on this tower anymore. So you give up and you go your separate ways. And even today we have languages that don't even sound or look anything like each other. You know, it, it couldn't have come one after the other after the other. There was wholly different languages um, around the world to this day. So this Verse, this chapter we're talking about here in Revelation 17 talks about the adulteress, something being adulterated. Um, when you look up the meaning of adulterated, anything that's adulterated, it's not just relationships that can be adulterated. It is anything that's made impure by adding or mixing in something else. You know, if you want to make more money on a drink, you water it down. Well, that's adulterated juice. But anything that mixes in Good stuff with error is adulterated or impure things. So the great controversy on pages of 382 and 383, Ellen White says, says the apostle James, you adulterers and adulteresses know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And then she says it was by departure from the Lord and alliance with the heathen that the Jewish church became a harlot. And Rome, corrupting herself in like manner by seeking the support of worldly powers, receives a like condemnation. Babylon is said to be the mother of harlots. She started this, this, and now her daughters must be symbolized by churches that cling to her doctrines and traditions and follow her example of sacrificing the truth and approval of God in order to form an unlawful alliance with the world. The message of Revelation 14 announcing the fall of Babylon must apply to religious bodies that were once pure and have become corrupt. Since this message follows the warning of judgment, it must be given in the last days. And in the 18th chapter of Revelation, the people of God are called upon to come out of Babylon. According to this scripture, so the, con the conclusion would be, God's people, many of God's people must still be in Babylon, which is where we are today. There's, uh, Jesus talks about the tares and the wheat. And that's, shall we, shall we pull up the tares? No. You know, we don't want to, we don't want to have good, 
uh, crop being pulled up while we're pulling up the weeds. Let them grow together, and at the end of time, it'll all be sorted out. I find it interesting, too, that um, in Patriarchs and Prophets, Ellen White, page 260 says, Many were content to remain in bondage rather than leave Egypt. Talking now about the parallels between Egypt and the Exodus and where we are at the end of time. It's hard to believe, but evidently some of the Egyptians, I mean, some of the Israelites have been in Egypt so long, though under bondage and miserable, they would have rather stayed there than leave. And we see that in relationships today, too. Some people stay in a really awful, um, abusive, uh, um, filled marriage because it's something they know rather than the unknown something. They don't know. They fear that worse than they hate what their situation is now. Well, apparently, some of the Israelites didn't have the desire to go out into the wilderness somewhere and do trust God. They didn't know him that well. And so uh, Ellen White says that the plagues, part of the reason of the plagues was to encourage the people of Israel to want to leave. And it was so encouraging that a lot of actually Egyptians left with them. They're like, hey. Look at him. <laughs> I'm following him. This was a co- this is a source of misery in the in the in the wilderness having these two groups mixed. But even the Egyptians were convinced to leave. A lot of them. Egypt was decimated. You know, you see that um, even Pharaoh's uh, advisors said, "Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed?" You know, say yes to this guy. You know, they're saying, when are you going to come to your senses and let him let him go? It's, it's destroyed Egypt. And Egypt never really got a whole lot better. Um, so in this day and age, we may be so comfortable with where we are. We need encouragement to leave. So we'll talk about the plagues in a minute. Leaving Babylon, going to promised land, you also think about during Nebuchadnezzar's and subsequent um, captivity, when they finally were allowed to leave, in fact, getting a decree, and the decree included everything they could use, all the supplies, gold and silver, even offerings so they didn't have to come up with their own offering money. Okay? And they still stayed. They were told to go and... They still stayed. Yep. And look at how many people actually went back versus how many people were in, in Babylon. It was a remnant. You like to be critical of them, but sometimes I am fearful of doing things that seem to be what I'm supposed to be doing. Because I'm afraid of the ghost out there, the ghost under my bed, or whatever you want to call it, you know. So could this not be the purpose, the final purpose of the seven last plagues? There we go. <laughs> That's sort of coming to where I was um, was going with this. Um, although not immediately, apparently. <laughs> well, let's clarify some things. Are the seven last plagues coming from the hand of God like they did in Egypt or are they coming because God has moved his, removed his restraint and Satan and his forces now have free reign uh, un, unfettered by the four angels holding back the winds of strife because if it, depending on who's bringing the uh, plagues you can discern what the purpose is well yeah but he's letting go with still the plan to save as many possible. Not yes, to, to wait to sever ties that are yeah. binding us to the earth, right. to, to um, Even accelerate the cognitive dissonance. Fair enough. So I found it <laughs> several pages later. <laughs> um, I found a text, Isaiah 26, 9 to 11, which says, When your judgments come upon the earth... And this is Old Testament. So when your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the earth learn righteousness. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. 
And then in the New Testament, Revelation, we have Revelation 16, 9 to 11 that says, They were seared by the intense heat and cursed the name of God who had control of these plagues. But they refused to, that's their opinion, who had control of these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed God in heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of all they had done. So there's a verse in the the Old Testament and one in the New Testament that refers to the purpose of, say, judgments, of decisions, of the things that happen to us, whether God causes them or whether his restraint lifted causes them. I see it as God wanting in every way possible to get through, to create the cognitive dissonance, to say, um, look what happens when you do this. <laughs> this is going to happen. Warns you ahead of time that it's going to happen. And the, the righteous go in the direction of God. And the wicked don't. No matter what they see. No matter what happens. They're not going to be convinced. Yes. I noticed that in that text in Isaiah. You can almost equate judgment with grace. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. It's like, whoa, you know, that's kind of a different way of thinking about it. But again, with the word justice, so many texts equate justice with God doing something gracious for widows and orphans, you know, etc. And we, we somehow get it all backwards. Well, another word we use in this class for judgment would be diagnosis. That's a judgment from a doctor. You're dying. You've got cancer. You're cured. It's gone. These are, these are judgments. We make judgments all the time about things that come to us. Every new piece of information we judge. Is that right or is it wrong? We accept it, we reject it. If our decision-making process is encumbered by is the, this part we're studying now by um, being drunk with the wine of Babylon, then we will not have clear thinking capabilities to distinguish what we should accept and what we shouldn't. There's something else I wanted to add when we, we think about God interacting one way or the other. You know, in our nation, even the politicians, it's common to hear them say, God bless America, in various uh, occasions and whatnot. And I thought, you know, what's really happening here is it that... that for example, look at the commandment, honor your parents, and then there's a promise associated with it. Do, do we view that God is like a magician looking down and goes, oh yeah, that, that child honored their parents, so I'm going to magically do something for them? Or is it purely natural consequences? You, you, you know, I'm saying that if you honor your parents, you're going to have a better relationship. You're going to be happier. Everything good is going to happen, and your days are going to be long upon this earth. And, and is it the same thing when we think about God blessing America? It's, it's, we shouldn't be pleading with God to do something different, which He doesn't need to do something different. It's us that need to get our hearts in condition to accept His blessings. Yes. And in insurance lingo, when something bad happens to your house like a tornado or flood, it's an act of God. Already written into our insurance language, that's an act of God. We are already blaming him for what happened to our house. We're still on Sabbath lesson. The um, first paragraph says, the sixth plague causes a symbolic drying up of the Euphrates. Now this is um, taken right from the Sabbath school lesson. As the delusion, as the deluded... Delusioned people of the world draw their popular support from, uh, withdraw their popular support from end time Babylon. So we, you know, it's funny. We look at Revelation and we sometimes think it's prophetic and we say, yeah, it's prophetic. And then other times we think it's literal. So we, we pick and choose kind of and decide that something is literal, like the drying up of the Euphrates. But if you look at it symbolically, they're saying that the drying up of the Euphrates is related to the drying up of the people's support for Babylon. Babylon itself was located on the Euphrates, and it was a, a huge 
center of the world at the time. It relied, just as it relied on things being brought in and taken out from by river, in prophecy waters the people. And so the Babylon is supported by the majority. And the, the point is... Um, in the read section below on the Sunday's lesson, when, when what two groups of people are specified as being involved in a, in a relationship, illicit relationship, and being seduced by end-time Babylon? One, the kings of the earth, the governing political powers, a union of church and state. And two, the inhabitants of the earth, the governed masses who are intoxicated by Babylon's false teaching and practices. They're deceived into thinking that she can protect them. When people are drunk, they don't think clearly and they're controlled easily so the point at this point i'd like to say the masses of the people get it wrong (laughs) Uh, the rule of the majority which we love so much here in in the democratic or we're a republic but in democratic and republic things we want the majority rules uh, type of thing to happen but what should this tell us about the dangers of going with the majority in a spiritual light and the Bible seems to indicate the majority is wrong. Yeah. Our definitions of certain words in this class differ than how those same words are used. For example, love in this class means the working toward the benefit of others. Other-centered love. We talk about that. Um, and yet that is a differently portrayed, etc. It's interesting that most definitions in our current culture are accepted as what the majority thinks about a given entity. And that is declared to be truth, is whatever the majority does. And so far in most of the Bible passages, the majority has always been wrong. And the leaders of that majority especially so. You know, when you look at Jesus' life, he was so kind to people. He protected their errors. He made it known that he knew what they were. So the person who did wrong, say Simon, who he was he was casting a bad light on Mary, trying to wash Jesus' feet. But Jesus knew Simon was the one, according to Ellen White, that got her into her life. <laughs> but he so kindly didn't say that so everybody else knew. He said it so that Simon would know and tried to get... Simon to see how he was in error without making it public or the woman caught in adultery. He was so kind to um, her, but also to them. He revealed, we're told in the sand, the sins of the people who were about to stone her. (laughs) And the the oldest left first and the youngest finally were convinced, oh, he knows what I've done (laughs) and left till she was all alone. But he did not share that information with each other. He kindly shared it with the people who needed to know and then shared his mercy towards her. Of course, I don't continue either. You know, so Jesus was, Jesus is really kind not to um, reveal our issues to other people than between us. I think at the end of time, that's what will be the ultimate destruction of peoples. When the Bible says, that, uh, and Alan White says, when, when Jesus looks at people, they will see everything in their life that they did or didn't do and the implications of that. They'll be so, uh, all the rationalizations will be ripped away. Everything that they have done in their life or said will be clear as day and that's a mental overload for people who have spent their whole life hiding behind rationalizations and distortions, where people who have saved have had to actually confront that as well, (laughs) but on a little dosage system, you know, like let the Holy Spirit in now so that he can give you the doses that you can tolerate in the measure that you can tolerate. At the end of time, the full dose and full measure will be made known to the persons that happen. Who We're told that you know people will see the panorama of the great controversy. Everybody will see that from beginning to end. It's like the great controversy, the movie, you know, playing out to everybody. So those who were informed about it and those who weren't informed about it see the whole thing. But it, to the person themselves, their own wickedness will only be to them. They will see where they went wrong, what part they played, and so on. And so even in that way, God is sort of kind uh, to us. I do want to just hit on chapter 18 for a minute, where it says that 
in one hour. We haven't read it, and we won't take time now, but it, if you read The Fall of Babylon, it talks about um, she's become the home for demons. That's 18 verse 2. Great. So Babylon the Great has, been the, has become the home for demons. So if, if Babylon is a, an adulterated church, this is saying that demons are active within all those churches right next to us. You know, trying to instill fear, trying to instill misunderstanding, trying to make us not get the truth. It's important to know that we are in a war and they are, and demons are around trying to get through. Jesus, um, at the end in the, in the Old Testament, it says people will see that man who destroyed his world and wouldn't let the captives go home. Ellen White says when we see him, we will realize that there is no way we could have gotten to heaven or been saved without Christ. We'll see what we were up against. But we take for granted that we're just passing our days and making our decisions, but they're important decisions, and it's coming right down to the wire. And I want to point out, too, another thing that really surprised me in chapter 18 was um, give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. I don't know. For some reason, I didn't think of luxury as that big of a deal. You know, I think they should have said perversion and violence and all that. But instead they said glory to self and luxury (laughs) was symbolic of what was going on with the adulterated churches. It's about self. God calls us to be the river of life, not the lake of life. He gives us stuff to pass on to others diligently. So that... Um, amaze me that God focuses on the luxury and the selfishness. Might that apply to the prosperity gospel? I very much worry about the prosperity gospel. We God means for us all to be rich. Why would He mean for us all to be rich? Because in Jesus said it's harder for a rich person to enter heaven than a camel through the eye of a needle, uh, which can be an actual needle. Or there's supposedly a little door that they referred to that was call the needle but anyway a difficulty so why would God want us to have all that difficulty (laughs) why would he bless us with a curse you know he blesses maybe blesses some with money because they've demonstrated an ability to handle it well a lot of the guys in the Bible were very rich guys you know Abraham and David and all the Solomon very rich guys but they were handling it not necessarily in Solomon's case he was sort of abusing his people in some way uh, extracting a lot of money from them and so on but um, a lot of these guys knew how to handle the wealth that was coming their way. And my mom is always quoting, the love of money is the root of all evil, as if being rich was evil. It doesn't say rich people are evil. It says the love of money. And I'm here to say poor people can love money every bit or more than rich people can. Their whole focus is on getting it, making it, winning it, you know, stealing it, something That is the love of money. It doesn't have to be having it. It has to be making that your goal. Money. When God should have been your goal all along. You drew comparisons earlier with Sodom and Gomorrah. I I think this pointing out of luxury is it dovetails nicely with it. Because a correct understanding of Sodom and Gomorrah, the sin of this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She was overfed and didn't care for her poor. They were wrapped up in luxury as well. It's different than you think. God is looking at things differently than we would interpret it. And then we're run out of time, but I just want to say one more thing. Uh, again, in, ch- in chapter 18, it keeps emphasizing how little time there is. It keeps saying in one day. And if you look at prophetic time, one hour is two weeks, roughly. Ellen White says the end of time, things will be rapid, rapid events. Uh, she also says in Christ's Object Lessons 4.15 and 16, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They're to reveal the grace of God, what it has done for them. I want to just finish with what the Bible says is God's avenging wrath. 
Therefore, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. And what do you guess is the how? (laughs) I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. God's vengeance is against the sin that's killing us, not against us. He is against the cancer. He's like a doctor. I don't want to kill my patient. I want to kill with a vengeance the cancer that's killing my patient. God's vengeance is like that. And another one last verse, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with a vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for the parts of Revelation that we can understand and the parts we're still learning about. Help us to turn our attention to the truths that you would want us to know, the truths that are hiding from us, the truths about ourselves that we hide from us. Open the door. Let us see. Give us the courage to turn to you whenever you tell us the truth about ourselves and to freely let you in with no fear and in all trust. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah. Yeah.